You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey there, welcome to The Agenda podcast. Uh, Tom in for Georgia. He's taken a couple of days away at the moment. Uh, and uh, earlier on today, we talked all things health, or more specifically mental health. Arab health has got underway here in Dubai. It's a big focus on health stories throughout the course of the week. Uh, And we looked at a new study suggesting that younger workers are burning out at record rates. Could our workplaces be doing more to ensure employee well-being? Is this a problem the world over, uh, rather than just the test cases over in the United Kingdom? Should companies be doing more? We'll be asking the experts shortly for their advice on that one. Um, As always, we are asking you to get in touch with the show with your thoughts and your experiences. We've also been taking a look at a a rather novel new viral campaign aimed at keeping us all safe from scams. It's been designed by Emirates MBD in association with the Dubai police. It's got a lot of people talking. It's gone viral uh, around the region and further afield. And we'd love your thoughts uh, on the video, the message and otherwise. Uh, plus, we will be talking all things jetpacks. Why? Uh, the Dubai Jetpack Race is coming to town next month in February during the Dubai Boat Show. Uh, it's going to be the first of its kind uh, anywhere in the world. It's going to be something of a showcase for the company behind it, Gravity. Uh, and we've caught up with the uh, founder of Gravity who joined us to tell us about the jet suit, to tell us about the race, to tell us about the proposed series of races moving forward. And, of course, to find out why Dubai is the choice venue to launch a new concept like this. All that and much, much more. And lest we forget, uh, the question that we had on all of our lips this morning has was had Chris McCarty uh, finished in the top three of the dad's race down at uh, his daughter's sports day because that's where he uh, got in touch with us with the latest sports headlines. But they all pale into insignificance as to whether uh, he finished on the podium in the dad's race. All that will be revealed tomorrow, I'm sure. But enjoy, for the meantime, uh, the podcast right here on the agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda Live here on Dubai I want a 3.8. Uh, thanks very much indeed for your company this morning uh, and thanks also uh, for your messages. Turning our attention, uh, Jen's joined us live in studio, are right, Jen? Hello, All how good? are you? Nice weekend? Not bad, thank you, not bad. Yeah. Quite lazy. Lazy? Yeah. This time of year? Lazy on Saturday because we went to Abu Dhabi on Friday to see Hamilton and oh, got yeah. home at about 1am. So Thumbs Saturday up. we did nothing. Amazing, actually. Very, very good. They're here for a while, aren't they? Uh, until mid-February, okay. I think. So it's about a month, the run, more or less. Go and check it out. It's very good. Uh, we'll turn our attention now to a topic that's never far from the conversation here in the UAE. Scams. It's all about the scams. Uh, everyone's received them. Everyone's received the messages, the emails, the phone calls, the updates, blah, 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 wherever it might be. But have you ever been scammed? Uh, do you know what to do when you suspect a scam? Uh, we want to hear your story, please. So as I said, text your stories now to... Four- this is not a scam, by the way, all right? So feel <laughs> free to text on 4001, or you can give us a call on 04871 uh, You can speak to Mills, you can speak to Benji, you can speak to the team, tell them your story. Um, chances are you'll be far from alone because it's an issue. 
It's an issue that ain't going anywhere at the moment. So much so, in fact, that the authorities have decided that uh, enough is enough. And they've released this brand new uh, campaign, a rather major new campaign, aimed at raising public awareness of scamming risks. Um, Let's just say it's um, it's different campaign, that is. Uh, Jen's joined us live in studio. Another day, another scam. Indeed. Can you say it without the accent? Do you have to do the funny accent on the words? (laughs) Scam. I don't think I can do that. I'm just going to say it normally. It's just a scam, mate. It's all a scam. (laughs) It's a common problem. I was trying to remember when the last time I had a serious issue was with scams. And it was the last time we were working together. Okay. Do you remember I got a phone call just after we came off air and it was someone who was claiming to be from the government. And they'd managed to send me a a one-time passcode through one of the government apps. And I was pretty confused for a couple of minutes, but it was, of course, a scam. And... Now the authorities say this kind of evolving threat, it's changing all the time. Mm. But apparently at the moment, the most common one is people pretending to be from the police. So sometimes it's your phone call, which we've all had, pretending to be from the police. But more recently, apparently, a lot of people have been getting emails with police logos on them, telling them that they've been fined for something. And it's got a link that you click on to look at your fines or to look at the picture of your car or whatever it purports to be. And it's actually a a hacking link. And when you go to pay your fine, they empty your bank account, which is nice. Um, And it's becoming more and more common. Earlier this month, in fact, we spoke to Lieutenant Rashid Ahmed Luta, who is the director of the Cyber Forensics Department at Dubai Police. And he said that these scams are kind of constantly changing. As we know, cybercrime is involving. And recently, the number of complaints related to the civil fraudulent method has increased significantly. Through email, spoofing website and impersonation call from people pretending to be a police officer. And it's a lot for them to keep up with. And there are helplines in place. Do you know how what you would do if you get scammed? Do you know what you're supposed to do? Um, no, I, I don't know who to call. I don't know the number of the Ghostbusters or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I know the sort of, if in doubt, don't click on the link or whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, if in doubt, don't click on the link, definitely. But... We are actually supposed to report these numbers, these calls, these emails. And Jamal Saleh, who is the Director General of the UAE Banks Federation, said the problem is that it's kind of hard to keep the information that they give to us all up to date. I'm often told by so many to teach the latest type of fraud and how to prevent it. Unfortunately, by the time I teach everyone how to avoid a specific fraud, by then, a new type of fraud have come up by yeah. fraudsters. I wouldn't know who to call. So there is a website that you're supposed to visit. It is ecrime.ae. And now, in a viral video dubbed Survive the Fraud, the police are trying to make sure that we're all aware of that website. Now, this video features a scammer who is pretending to be from the police but gets caught out by some potential victims who do know what to watch out for. Take a listen. It's different. At first I sent the link and she was petrified. Kept thinking she would be a victim of my scam and lies. But then I read a few lines and the grammar was all wrong. The hunch grew strong. He was trying to scam me all along. So I blocked his head and reported the fraud. 
Well, it's woken Melania up this morning, that's for sure. <laughs> I enjoyed blocked my phone calls from abroad. And the grammar was all wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's creative, I'll give them that. It's not just creative, it's already had millions of views and it was only uploaded late last week. And it did strike us as being a pretty different approach from the authorities here. We're not that used to seeing kind of funny music videos being used for such a serious campaign, but it is proving to be very effective. So in a moment... Uh, we are going to get more on this one. We're going to be joined by a branding expert to get uh, into the campaign a bit more to find out more information. Is this something that is striking a chord? Uh, let's uh, let's um, let's get more into this one because, it, 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 as you say, it's it's causing something of a stir, isn't it out there? It really is. When I checked this morning, it had more than eight hundred thousand likes on Instagram alone, and I don't think that's even the primary platform for it. No. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly got people talking, and with good reason. At first I sent the link, and she was petrified. Kept thinking she would be a victim of my scam and lies. But then I read a few lines, and the grammar was all wrong. The hunch grew strong. He was trying to scam me all along, so I blocked his head. Yeah, interesting. That's for sure. Uh, the big question is, is it going to make a difference to you? As I said, we're going to get some more expert advice on this one in just a little while. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. All right, let's stay with that big story, the viral campaign from Dubai Police teaming up with Emirates NBD to warn us uh, about the risks of scamming. Scammers these days have no new trend. It's a call from the police, but it's all pretend. And you'll regret it later if you don't report the call. But that's not all. They'll get all your details, they'll have it all. Getting carried away with the music, understandable. But the message herein is for the public to report scams and any attempted scams, for that matter, on the ecrime.ae platform. Not the first time that Emirates MBD and Dubai Police have collaborated and taken a rather musical approach for public awareness. Remember this one? But he sent me a reminder. It wasn't me. Message me on WhatsApp. It wasn't me. He even called me in the shower. It wasn't me. He told me I won the lottery. It wasn't me. He asked me for my password. It wasn't me. To verify my account number. It wasn't me. I even sent him a picture. It wasn't me. He dreamed my account and it was over. All good and well. But effective? Well, to discuss that further, I'm joined now in studio uh, by the Managing Director of Branding Studio Bond. Antimals is with us here as well. Anthony, good to see you as always. Thanks for your time good morning. this morning. Great to see you. Um, Humour. So not humour me, but humour uh, in campaigns. Does it work? Absolutely. I think there's quite a lot of research being done that says that humour, storytelling um, absolutely works when it comes to advertising. Um, it um, is what we like to do as humans, tell stories to each other. So it's the thing that a brand needs to do, which is to stick in someone's head, be memorable. And it does that through, if you can do that through humour, through storytelling, through surprise then it's very effective. You, you talk about the effectiveness, and you, you sort of just back up exactly what you're saying there, because when Ant walked into the studio, um, we were talking about 
this campaign and you said to us yeah but do you remember the one they did a couple of years ago and we sort of looked a little bit blankly we just played a <laughs> clip of it there but they've obviously seen the benefit of in the parts and thought okay let's do this again well obviously i assume that one was successful um in terms of grabbing people's attention it stuck in my mind um i know that was also similarly successful with millions of views when it was launched had a lot of publicity and people talking about it so yeah i mean it's it's effective and it's very difficult i mean when you come to think about branding of or marketing a public safety campaign as this kind of is it's difficult to get people to change behavior to think about things in a different way so if you can find ways to do that through music through humor and stick in people's minds uh, all the better i think there was um, a very famous case which is actually rated as one of the best campaigns ever which is the uh, dumb ways to die campaign in which was done by uh, rail safety in, in melbourne um, and as I said, it's, it's ranked on, you know, as one of the best ever. I think it has, it's got 300 million views. Uh, I looked this morning in terms of wh- where that is. Um, and uh, I think there's evidence to show that that actually changed people's behavior and made people take a little bit more notice about what they were doing in that rail environment. And I mm. assume this is going to have the same effect, just make people think a little bit more about what they're doing. But, but it's catchy as well. Yeah, and I know yeah. that's, a, that's, that's, that, that, that's a, a, a neither here nor there phrase. But in terms of... And you, it's interesting you just mentioned the dumb ways to die thing, because I immediately start humming that theme tune in my head as soon as you yeah, said yeah, that yeah. as well. It, is it the same when it, when, it, when it comes to a campaign like this? And how important is the song as that, as that link, as that latch, if you like? I mean, that's one way to do it. I mean, I think um, you can think of other examples locally. Yas Island have done some really nice campaigns um, as well. Staying on Yas was another one that was launched, I think, a couple of years ago now. Yeah. So tapping into those existing memories, using existing songs or tunes, which mm. those ones do, is one way to do it. So that's obviously like a shortcut to, uh, to kind of stick in people's minds. Obviously, another way to do it, there's a recent one, I think KFC Arabia have an ad where they created a rap in Arabic. Um, the one you mentioned, Dumb Ways to Die, it sticks in your head. These are things that they've created themselves. Mm. So that's another way to do it. So there are different methods of doing it. But if you can take shortcuts, create sort of memories and use existing memories, I think that's always very powerful. You've got that phonic hook, haven't you, almost? Mm. Um, the, the video's been uh, shared far and wide here. It's, it, is, uh, it has gone viral, if you like. Um, was that the intention from the off for Emirates MBD and Dubai Police? I, I think so, yes. I mean, nowadays it's really difficult. If you think back, I mean, where I grew up in the UK, there used to be what you call the monoculture. Everyone would sit and watch, I don't know, Coronation Street. Mm. And it would be very easy to have an advert that millions of people would view in that one moment. So you could invest, make the, make the ad, mo- know that people would see it. Nowadays, that doesn't happen, especially in Dubai. We live in such a multicultural environment, different cultures, different um, sort of subcultures that we all belong to. Having that sort of um, that, that shared uh, moment doesn't really exist. Mm. So the only way to cut through, as with humour or music or so, so forth, is to have those viral moments that people share organically. Um, it, it's, 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 you know, it's the new way to, uh, to do this. Is this on brand with the bank, though? Uh, it's it's very interesting because obviously it's not selling a product it's yeah. selling um it's 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 a public safety campaign in some ways but it's it's more about i think about the purpose selling the purpose of the bank so they are positioning themselves through this as trustworthy responsible people that care about your interests and in so doing 
I'm sure there is <laughs> at some level the idea that people will trust you and, and bank with you. So uh, it, it all adds up to, you know, helping build the brand over time. And that element of using a bit of sense of humour as well, um, almost cartooning yourself to a certain degree, you know, taking, uh, having a little bit of fun with it. Does that reflect well on a brand as well with consumers? I think the human side of things absolutely yeah. does. I think the, the actual problem with a lot of advertising nowadays is that it is inauthentic or doesn't feel uh, connecting to people. Uh, it's not human. Um, so I think anything that you can do to actually speak to people uh, in that way is, is, only, uh, is only to the benefit of any brand. Will it work as well? I mean, I don't expect you to have the, 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 the numbers in front of you as well. I mean, it's obviously working in terms of being shared because people are going, oh, this is really funny. Have a little look at it. Will that therefore result in a change in opinion and will it work in getting more of these scams reported? I mean, like any campaign, it, it should be, and I'm sure it is part of a bigger, broader yeah. idea. So, yes, it's a way in. It's people are thinking about it, hopefully in a new way. Um, but and I think even on the on the ad itself, there is a, a website. I think you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, Ecrimes.ae. So um, obviously, then there's a whole world around that that, that needs to be built to actually uh, ingrain that behavior. So this is kind of a starting point. Um, and it needs to be followed through on um, either by you know the bank and, and by police or by people actually continuing to think about this. This one's gone um, viral on socials, um, and I've, obviously I'm sure that was part of the intention of the digital teams, the agencies that were involved in this one, uh, and of course the partners as well. It, I mean, you've seen the sort of changing landscape of branding here in the region uh, over 15, 16 years or so. I mean, is this the sort of sweet spot now for companies, for organisations when it comes to getting a brand or a message across? Uh, like I said, yeah, absolutely. I think humour, music, surprise, storytelling, these things are absolutely the way to build brands. Uh, as I said, uh, finding things that can be shared across cultures yeah. in this in Dubai in the UAE is and difficult. And generations, I'm assuming. And generations, well. yeah. It's, it's difficult because we have so many different people and generations and cultures here. So so finding something that can cut across all of that is, 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 is a lovely way to do it. Mm. Well... I know what song's going to be stuck in my mind for the rest of the day and probably the rest of this week as well. Um, uh, Anthony, we can't thank you enough. Thanks so much indeed for coming in and uh, giving us your expertise on this one as well. Uh, Anthony is the managing director of the branding studio, the award-winning branding studio, Bond. Uh, and I'll thank you to you, thank you. for joining uh, us to uh, explain that. And I'm sure we'll get you back in for the next one as well. There will, more, <laughs> there, <I'm will>. sure. <laughs> there will be more, I'm sure. There will be more. Morning all, it's the Agenda Live here on Dubai I winner 3.8. Uh, pick it up where the business breakfast has left off. Right, let's kick off with a question, if we may. First thing, on a Monday morning, a brand new week, when was the last time you missed work? I'm not talking about annual leave here, but about illness, about sick leave. Hopefully all being well, it's been a while. But what about if I were to include the last time you were... You say it sort of appropriately these days, not at your best at work, uh, when you were there in body, but perhaps not in mind, not in spirit. It might sound like an odd question early on a Monday, but as Arab Health kicks off today and turns the UA's focus onto the nation's well-being, a new study from researchers in the UK suggests that younger workers in particular are facing burnout at record rates. And the result is a productivity crisis equivalent to one missed day of work 
each week. Researchers following more than 4,000 workers over the course of a year found they took an average of six days off but felt unable to work at full capacity on 50 days, with those under 30 reporting the highest levels of stress, burnout and insomnia. Clearly, not good news for employers at the moment, but do these findings track uh, here in the UAE? Is this a global issue at the moment? Uh, could employers be doing more? Should they be doing more? To discuss that further, I'm joined now in the studio by two experts in this field. Uh, Lorna King is a workplace culture consultant at Together, joining us live here in studio. Lorna, great to see you. Hi, thank you for having me. And Dr. Kieran Hillier needs little introduction, a clinical psychologist, assistant professor of psychology at Heriot Watt University, Dubai, and a regular here on Dubai Eye. Kieran, lovely to see you as always. Glad to be back, Tom. Let's start with you, Lorna, if may, because let's start with a numbers game. I've gone all business breakfast on us, haven't I? You know, we're crunching the numbers straight away. But. And again, I don't know if it's just because of me and my sort of mindset and culture and, you know, getting to work is, is, is a sort of mandate for me and something I do regardless of how I'm feeling as well, which is probably a bit selfish. But 50 days a year um, sounds a lot in that context. The, the people feeling unable to work at full capacity on 50 days. Does that surprise you? Um, I think it's a reality, This is self-reported, don't forget. So it's also people being more open about their ability to work. Um, I think probably people in older generations experience the same thing, but are more likely just to power through. The other thing is people are less likely to come into the office when they're feeling sick now. There's a lot more self-awareness around the germs that you're spreading and things like that. People, Mm. especially Gen Z, see, are... um, you know, very self-conscious when they sneeze and cough and things like that. So it makes sense that they would take themselves out of this. Um, yeah. I mean, the numbers themselves, I mean, the, 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 the six days off, again, that was the average number as well. That seemed a little bit low to me, I guess, especially when it's self-reporting. I'm sure a lot of people might have a little bit of forgetfulness when it comes to how many days they actually take off as well. But it was just that, that full capacity, that inability to be working at full capacity, which would therefore suggest... Um, uh, some of the elements that we, we associate with burnout as well. Uh, those under 30 reporting the highest levels of stress, burnout and insomnia. Is there, a, is there a generational play here as well or not? I think we need to talk about the definition of productivity as well. You know, productivity has increased many fold over the years. Now we have all of this technology that helps us. Um, and the idea was that technology was supposed to help us have a better way of living, you know, a more advanced way of living. So when we're looking at people not being at their best, they're still producing 50 times more than what they were 30 years ago. So we need to take all of this into account and actually celebrate the people who are putting their health first and, you know, do, doing that preventative action to make sure that they're looking after themselves as good as possible. Kieran, you work with 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 young people every single day um, Mm. of your life, but you work across generation as well. I mean, under 30s reporting higher levels of stress, does that surprise you? Uh, I think Lorna makes a good point that is is at least part of this to do with people's willingness to disclose. I think younger people are are more aware of it and there's less stigma associated with talking about mental health issues. So are they just more comfortable self-reporting this stuff when they're asked in a survey? Um, 
And as we become more educated about it, so then they're also more familiar with identifying the difficulties that they're having. Because I think, like, if you look across the board, like, work is is a common stressor (laughs) for people. Um, And so then it's a matter of going, okay, can we identify the sources of the stress um, that are happening for any particular generation and how much of it is to do with organizational culture and workplace expectations Um, because I think certainly post-COVID we've seen a shift where are you expected to be on call 24 hours? Mm. Are you expected to answer emails even when they're sent after your official work hours? So that has shifted as well. Um, And so how much of it is to do with individuals struggling and so then how do we target that but how much of it is also due to workplace expectations um, and protocols and procedures that might be contributing to that as well so it's it's complicated and i'm, I'm glad Lord, that you brought brought up the you know the gen z gen gen z gen z uh, debate <laughs> that rages at the moment because you know it's it, it, a lot of people will look at this research won't they kieran and they'll say oh god here we go another piece of research that suggests that uh, poor old gen z's are the ones that are <laughs> the, 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 the feeling the stresses and the strains the most at the moment i mean is that is that in itself healthy as well as we sort of pit generation against generation you don't know how good you've had it you lot right this generational divide um and yeah and it's one where as lorna mentioned when they say that they don't feel as capable well then what does that mean is does that mean someone who is usually at 100 percent and they're coming into work and they're feeling 80 percent, so they're still getting a lot done um, they're maybe just not as enthusiastic about it or are we talking at someone who's 20%? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how helpful it is, but it might also be that um, organisations are very mindful that these are the people who are going to contribute a larger and larger portion of your employee workforce. So then if you are mindful about what is it that they value Um, in a workplace so that we can make our organization as appealing to them as possible when we are recruiting and how do we retain people. So are we more mindful about what these shifts in priorities are uh, for people in that is workplace, is work-life balance more important um, for individuals or compared to um, older generations where maybe it was primarily about earning capacity or career trajectory. Mm. And we're seeing a shift there. And so then if you're prioritizing your own self-care more, which is important from a long-term sustainability perspective to minimize things like burnout, uh, then are organizations able to respond to that? Or do we then create this generational divide where management is primarily from these older organization, uh, older generations, sorry. And so then they'll say, well, you know, these young people today don't know how good it is, yeah. um, which means, okay, we're not having a fruitful conversation here. It's going, okay, you're, we're identifying that there's some issues there. And if you want to retain these workers who are very good, then you need to think about how you are accommodating for that and trying to prevent some of these issues like situations, um, workplace contexts that can create or make someone vulnerable to things like burnout. Lorna, responsibilities. Let's talk about responsibilities. Uh, When it comes to employee well-being, I mean, who is responsible these days for employee well-being? Um, as always, there's an onus on the individual to take care of themselves. And this is what we're seeing with people asserting themselves through taking time off to take care of themselves or dialing back the efforts if they see fit. However, we know that managers have such a big impact on the health of their employees, more so than the doctors. They see them every day and they take that energy home with them to their friends, their family, and it spreads out through society. So, you know, as a workplace culture consultant, it's a very passion driven job for me. I think it can change the world 
if we look at the way workplaces work together and take care of their people. You know, we can pit generations against each other, but it's happening. And I think it's good to call it out and get companies prepared for this war on talent, as Kirin says. They need to be providing that attractive value proposition. And also it's morally the right thing to do. Wouldn't you feel better going home each night knowing that the employees who worked with you had had a you know, fruitful, productive and purposeful day as opposed to sort of gritting their teeth through pain or you know, mental health, which is a big part of this, right? Mm. No, I, I completely take it. I, I, I just see teething problems at the moment, though, mm. Kieran, and you, you've just highlighted a few, you know, when you've got older generation. You know, there's the well-documented stories over in the US at the moment, the big uh, equity funds, the big uh, financial institutions where the bosses, you know, certainly turn around and said, if you're not in work mm-hmm. on a certain time, on a certain day, if you're not pulling your weight, then you're not going to have a job, etc. That just seems to clash yeah. with the conversations that are ongoing at the moment. For sure, especially when when people took the job, they were told, yes, you are going to have a flexible yeah. option where you it's either hybrid or fully remotely and then two years into your job, it's suddenly, no, you have to relocate um, to a certain city or you have to be in a certain uh, numbers of days a week. Well, it's, well, that's not what the agreement was when I first signed up. And now this isn't a conversation that we're having about how do we transition in a way that's beneficial for everyone. This is an order coming from top down. And those organisations do lose people um, because you're removing that ability for people to have a sense of autonomy over how it is that they structure their day. And that's a big part. If you feel like you have a lack of control, that's a big contributor um, to things like burnout. We're going to continue this conversation uh, here in studio. We're in conversation uh, with Lorna and Kieran for the next 15 to 20 minutes. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, good to have your company on a Monday morning as we continue our chat about workplace well-being and as Arab Health kicks off today. I don't need to tell you about that, all those that have been stuck in traffic in and around that area. Uh, in terms of the UAE's focus onto the nation's physical and mental health, we're taking a closer look at the issue of stress and burnout. Uh, Why? New study from the UK suggesting that uh, younger workers in particular are facing burnout at some record rates. Researchers saying that stress, insomnia and are overwhelming, uh, are leaving uh, workers unable to function fully for as much as 20% of a working week at the moment. But can and should employers be doing more to curb those trends. Two experts in studio. We've got the workplace culture consultant uh, from Together, Lorna King, uh, and Dr. Kieran Hillier, who is a clinical psychologist, assistant professor of psychology at Harriet Watt University, Dubai campus. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on, on the workplace, first and foremost. Again, mm. um, you know, many of these conversations uh, stem back to the shock that COVID gave the world gave us all it, it sort of uh, uprooted our sort of understanding of how we work when we work why we work etc gave yep. people a lot of focus etc but have the demands of the demands of the workplace changed since then or not Ooh, good question uh i mean it does vary depending by industry um and I think the biggest issue that uh, people will complain about if you talk to workers is 
um, boundary setting right. in regards to when does work actually stop. Um, and, you know, so when, you've, when you're working in areas like marketing and so you're very client-focused and especially in like a region where we are where you might be dealing with clients who are across a range of different time zones and so then it's, oh, I have to be on call in case there's a question from my American counterpart at midnight but then I've also got someone who's in Lebanon and so they're two hours ahead so I've also got to be available at seven in the morning in case there's something. So how do you um, establish those boundaries in order to for people to have a sustainable work practice? So that's a big one. Um, and then the other one was COVID sort of created an opportunity where people thought, oh, we can actually – do stuff, um, you know, people can work remotely and still be productive. But it also created a big financial hit for a lot of companies. And the way that they dealt with that was then to um, make a number of people redundant. Mm. Uh, and so then organizations on the other side were going, ooh, like, look out how much stuff we can get done with only with a third less of our employees. Um, and it was, well, that was a, that was meant to be an exception to the rule. <laughs> and, and then for a lot of organizations, it's kind of progressed onto an expectation. Um, and so then it becomes for people feeling like that they can't complain um, or raise any concerns that they've got because um, employers might go, well, you know, it's such a competitive market. If you can't deal with it, then we'll just bring in somebody else. So there's a lack of job security mm. um, for people that they feel I can't vocalize any problems. And I've worked with clients and like organizations where employers will tell me they will use this as a reason to get rid of me. Like I can't look weak. I can't look vulnerable. Mm. I can't look like I'm struggling. Um, but then when you talk with like everybody's in that situation, but nobody feels safe um, to share that. So it's it's a fear about how management is going to respond to any difficulties or complaints that you have is another big one, too. And, and Lorna, I mean, in, in terms of that, and I think, again, bringing COVID into the conversation, COVID, well, you know, one of the sort of positives to come out of COVID. There weren't that many, but one of them was, of course, more focus on mental health within the workplace and a, and a, and a greater understanding of it and the ability to talk about it as well. We, we saw that globally. Is, that, is it having an impact here as well? Employ, employers here in the region more willing to port, talk about mental health in the workplace? Is that something that's changed? Absolutely, yes. Um, there was a big shift to you know apply more mental health resources such as EAPs, um, employee assistance programs, even in where I was working at the time, was ADNOC. Mm. Um, so it shows an indication, but obviously it needs to go much further than that. For all companies, they need to look at their systems, their policies, their processes. When you bring up COVID as well, there's something, you know, this conversation centers around Gen Z. A lot of these people entered the workforce whilst we were remote, whilst we were hybrid working and and now integrating or being asked to go back to offices, which is even more shocking for them. When we grew up, we expected to be in the office yeah. every single day. Mm. We never questioned that there might be a future out there for us that's different. So it's no wonder that they're influencing the conversation and demanding more in terms of flexibility and, and two-way relationships. If we're to focus on this study, um, 
and, and look at the sort of findings of this study. Again, I appreciate the fact that the study sort of focused on the UK work market, but it does give an indication as to some of the global trends as well, that record numbers of younger workers in particular are facing burnout at record rates. And again, I think you can equate it here. Why? Uh, we live in a very fast-paced environment at the moment. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot mm. going on as well. There's still, regardless of what people say, there's still that work hard, play hard uh, attitude. And we live in a, in a visa work-driven environment as well. People come here to work. You know, the very few people come here not to work. It's quite difficult to do that. Um, so if, if we are to curb, if we're to take this as a trend, mm. what are the solutions? How do we start to curb the trend? What can we do or what do you like to see done to help curb these trends? I think listen to the workforce. And that's one of the things that we always do is we go down to the frontline workers or the you know, the biggest portion of the workers and actually speak to them about their experiences. We're making a lot of assumptions, you know, even in this conversation, I went out and looked at the, the trends around Gen Z, but actually speaking to the people is something that you can't put aside because there's differences by industry, by, you know, grade, by gender, by nationality. People want different things and we're moving towards a society of more individualism. Mm. So I would speak to your workers, find out what they prioritise and see how you can find that middle ground that suits both the employer and the employees. Kieran, what is the solution here? <laughs> uh, Give us the solution, a solution, dollar question. <laughs> if I could give you a nice <laughs> one-sentence answer, that would be brilliant. Um, but I would reiterate what Lorna was saying is that, yeah, unfortunately, um, no one solution will fit everybody. Um, and that's what makes it frustrating, which I can totally understand from an organization's perspective in like, what do you want? <laughs> and, um, and that is going to differ. And so the only way to really know that is to explore with your workers um, what it what is contributing to their stress, how much of that is individual stuff. And so then you can um, give them outlets like access to EAP, um, team building so that they feel more connected with their uh, uh, their peers. Um, and then how much of it is to do with are we doing things that maybe are very well intentioned in terms of our goals of making money and being productive, but it could cre- be creating some unintended mm. stress. And our ability to be able to self-reflect on that and to be able to go, yes, we acknowledge that and that's something that we need to change. And what is it that you guys would want instead? Like be careful about making assumptions that, um, oh, this is what we should be doing because this company did that. You go, yeah, but that company is in a totally different industry working with totally different group of um, employees. And so you can't generalise that. So it's tricky, um, but with the right support and that willingness to to adapt and to change, then I think it's also very empowering for organisations to know that they can be implementing things. It's just a matter of having that discussion. A discussion that rages here and continues right here on Dubai I-103.8. Uh, Dr. Kieran Hillier, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Lorna King, thank you very much indeed. Lorna is, of course, workplace culture consultant at Together. Uh, Kieran is the assistant professor of psychology at Harriet Watt University, Dubai, and a clinical psychologist here in the city. Kieran, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Tom. Lorna, thank you very much indeed for everything as well. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Let's talk sharks if we can. Why? Because hearing someone shout shark when you're at the beach probably isn't top of your wish list uh, at any point. Jaws, the film, uh, the book as well, has a lot to answer for for that. But here in the UAE, seeing our native and to the uh, most part harmless sharks in the water is an increasingly 
rare occurrence. One commonplace local shark and ray population, once commonplace, I should say, uh, the local shark and ray populations have now been hit hard by a variety of reasons, overfishing, coastal development, to name but a couple. Now, though, government-backed programme by the Atlantis Lost Chambers Aquarium is aiming to reverse that trend with a captive breeding programme for a number of near-threatened species. So just this weekend, 11 Arabian carpet sharks and four vulnerable honeycomb stingrays reared by marine scientists at the hotel were released into the Arabian Gulf waters. Uh, And there are more to come, we are told, to find a bit more. We're joined now uh, live on Microsoft Teams by the Director of Marine Animal Operations and Sustainability at Atlantis on the Palm Jumeirah. It is, of course, uh, Kelly Timmons. Kelly, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Nice to meet you. Um, Talk to me about the programme, if you can. When did it come into being? Well, we've had an active breeding programme of sharks and rays since, um, well, really since inception, because it's such a natural process. But around about six, seven years ago, we started uh, linking up with local government agencies and uh, looked to start releasing them back into protected areas. So we've been doing it for a little while now, and uh, it's just something that we want to continue doing uh, in the near future. Are there specific species that you are focusing on with the programme? Yeah, well, at the Lost Chambers, we have um, a natural breeding cycle of a number of different sharks and rays. But uh, the ones that we recently released were the Arabian uh, carpet sharks and also the honeycomb rays, which you said before are native to the Arabian Gulf. Um, But we also have around six different species of rays and four different species of sharks that are naturally breeding uh, in the Lost Chambers as well. But these are just the two species that we've chosen to uh, release. And actually, they're the two species that we've been releasing for that six or seven years now. So these aren't um, sharks and rays that have been rehabilitated up at the uh, up at uh, Atlantis. These are sharks, these are sharks and rays that have actually been specifically bred at the hotel. Yeah, yeah, they're not, uh, they're not rescues. Actually, we don't get many uh, shark and ray um, rescues or calls that people have found animals that need rehabilitation. If they did, then, you know, we're more than willing to take them on. But for the sharks and rays that we've got in this program, uh, we have been breeding them naturally. And they're animals that have been bred under human care in in the lost chambers. And uh, actually, the cycle of breeding is completely and utterly natural. So nothing is forced. Um, This is just something that they naturally do and therefore to make sure that we are responsibly managing the population under our care we look to do releases uh, maybe once a year uh, just to make sure that we're managing our own population in-house as well. And in terms of those releases congratulations on the the recent release of course to you and all the team must be a very proud moment to see them being released into the wild. Are you able to, to to monitor their progress in the wild? Yeah, well, I, I would say one of the first things is that when they get released, you know, we're not just putting them into any uh, off any random coastline. They're actually going into the uh, Jebel Ali Wildlife Sanctuary, which is an amazing protected area, um, both terrestrial and marine. So they're going into this very secure um, uh, location. Now, the species that we're releasing are very kind of localized. So they're not travelers. These sharks um, love to hide under rocks and corals, and uh, they're not basically traveling the ocean. So we're not tagging them, as you'll see many people do with different species such as turtles. Um, But those areas are monitored by the government. They're doing uh, uh, surveys to make sure that the biodiversity in that area uh, maintains as rich as it currently is. 
Um, obviously, we uh, a number of people obviously live in the UAE, live here in Dubai. We take for granted on many occasions the biodiversity uh, around us, none more so than the coastlines as well. Why are programmes such as yours so important, not just to you and all the team uh, up there at the Lost Chambers Aquarium, but to all of us here in the UAE? You're totally right. Actually, I'm always surprised about how um, how rich in species diversity the UAE waters actually are. And mm. it's one of the key things I want everybody to know is that, you know, the waters off our coastlines are incredibly rich with a huge array of, of marine life, including, uh, you know, sharks and rays. And the program that we have at the Lost Chambers, I think it's important because it also shows you the value of zoos and aquariums um, around the world. You've got many introduction programs where, you know, we're breeding animals under specialist care here and then successfully reintroducing them in order to give back to the local environment but also to invest a little bit more and add more uh, I suppose quantity and species diversity um, yeah where, where it's really needed so I think the key message is really zoos and aquariums are doing so many good good thorough breeding programs and uh, it should really be supported. Kelly, really appreciate your time this morning. Well done to you and congratulations to you and the team uh, for the release and all the best with the programme moving forward. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Perfect, thank you. Kelly Timmins, Director of Marine Animal Operations and Sustainability at the Atlantis uh, up on Palm Jumeirah. And of course, well done to all the team. Atlantis Lost Chambers Aquarium for that captive breeding programme. Yeah, good to have you with us here into the afternoon shift on the agenda live from Dubai, live on Dubai I-103.8 FM. Uh, right into our next story, and I may be showing my age here, but growing up, I'm pretty convinced that by this point, we'd all be whizzing about on hoverboards or in flying cars. Maybe we just have to wait a little bit longer. But it seems not all humans are as hampered by gravity as the majority of us. Why? World first race is coming to Dubai next month and the competitors will be taken to the skies with jet suits. Yep, it's dubbed the Dubai Jet Suit Race. The event's going to be taking place during February's Dubai Boat Show. It's going to be taking place under the patronage of His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Crown Prince of Dubai and the Chairman of the Executive Council of Dubai, with the Dubai Sports Council and Gravity Industries, uh, a company pioneering jet suits at the moment. So collaboration between many. Its team, uh, that uh, of Gravity, have flown uh, at 260 live events in over 45 countries since developing Gravity's jet suit uh, back in 2017. Delighted to say I'm now joined uh, on Teams, Microsoft Teams, by the firm's founder uh, and the chief test pilot, Richard Browning, who's taken time out to speak to us this morning. Richard, really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, good afternoon. Listen, a number of our listeners uh, here in Dubai and across the UAE will be aware, they'll have some sort of awareness of a jet suit. But tell us a bit more about yours and the modifications in your particular jet suit. Yes, so we have been probably viewed by many people around the world over the last six or seven years doing things like medic mountain rescue exercises. There's quite well-seen films of us flying up mountains um, in various countries around the world providing critical first response uh, medic uh, support. Uh, There's quite a few military uh, films out there of, of showing us providing special forces mobility. And indeed, we have flown in so many countries around the world that a lot of people have seen us live. But essentially, it is that a uh, flying system that looks as close to a human being flying as possible. So you've got um, 
these devices on your arms and a backpack on your back. And between them, they provide this jet thrust that allows you to move in a very kind of natural, organic way. And um, as I say, we have indeed been seen all over the world for quite some uh, years now. And it's all now coming together in the form of the race series. Yeah, it's really interesting because you mentioned there some extraordinary notable uh, uses for the jet suit for accessing places that uh, are inaccessible for military purposes and otherwise, etc., for delivering uh, systems as well. Um, when did the sort of the, the, the thinking or the discussion start about, you know what, we should have a race? Actually, relatively early on. I mean, th- th- if I wind it back, this, this whole journey started with no business plan whatsoever. It was it was simply a, an idea of could you add some technology to human beings, which are very good at balance and adapting themselves to different challenges. Could you add some horsepower to human being and make them or allow them to fly in a very natural way? That That started as a bunch of very amateur experiments in a farmyard back in the UK um, nearly seven years ago. And having got it to work within about a year alongside a day job, uh, it dawned on me that there was all sorts of possible applications of this. But within a few months of flying various events around the world and seeing the impact on people, uh, it did dawn on me that actually being in the air with other pilots and flying in this almost dreamlike freedom of movement kind of way, I thought would be, if nothing else, massively fun for the pilots. And it turns out it looks pretty spectacular to audiences too. It's just um, things like COVID came along when we were about to launch a race just before COVID uh, in Bermuda. And that somewhat put, put our plans back for gathering people. Uh, and we've been so busy with all the other applications around the world that it's taken till now and with the wonderful support of Dubai um, for it all to come together into this into this great championship plan. I suppose that leads me on to my next question. And it's, it's a simplistic question, so forgive me. But it's the age old why Dubai question. But by the very fact that we're calling it the Dubai Jet Suit Race and you've just hinted there at the collaboration and the support. I mean, could this uh, be possible in other parts of the world or is it sort of a, a, a given that Dubai was going to be the perfect place for it? Uh, firstly, there, there was no given, although having had the privilege of flying in the country for at least half a dozen different various events, even with the Dubai mm. police, um, it has always dawned on me that uh, Dubai is up there amongst the best in the world at being an audacious place where people turn seemingly impossible dreams into reality. I mean, the whole country, look at the journey the country's been on uh, or the city's been on um, over the last 20 years of turning um that landscape into something that is now a sort of world icon of the audacious and the impossible so it's it always dawned on me that it would be a brilliant fitting location to uh to, to kick off this race series but absolutely we have already plans in place to uh see this tour around the world i mean we're, and we're very much borrowing from the playbook of motor racing mm. in terms of bringing that spectacle to locations all over the world but i still think that if it starts in Dubai, every year it'll probably end in Dubai with the sort of crowning championships just because of that wonderful spiritual fit uh, with our journey. A first in so many ways, uh, the first Dubai jet suit race, the first opportunity for the public to see a race of this kind as well. Let's paint a picture, if we can, uh, Richard, for, for our listeners out there. I mean, in, to, talk to me about the course that you and your team have designed. How many, how many competitors can go round that course and what sort of speeds are we talking about? So yes, to, to paint a picture, it's probably best is to, to draw people's imagination towards uh, the quite well-known Red Bull Air Race, for instance, yeah. of those planes flying around over water <clears throat> um, uh, pylons, 
we're, we're going to be doing the same thing. Uh, this is going to be held down, as you mentioned, uh, next to the yacht show down by Skydive Dubai um, and over water because actually you can do much more dramatic maneuvers and much greater speeds over water where if you get it wrong, it becomes a, a kind of entertaining splash rather than something that could hurt you. Um, we've done 85 miles an hour before, over 130 kilometers an hour. I think you can go even faster, but it's going to be about pulling those spectacular, almost look unreal type maneuvers um, over water in that iconic backdrop location with, uh, to begin with, at least about eight pilots or so we're going to have planned guys and girls all racing around that course. It's going to be a sort of two or three minute visceral, impactful um, I, I suppose spectacle, then everybody lands and then the uh, podium finishes are right in front of the audience. And then we go again to build up those um, kind of, uh, I suppose, lap, lap times to get to a final championship race. Um, it, <clears throat> that will be very much pulling together that kind of Red Bull Air Race type spectacle, but with also the format that you're familiar with from motor racing. And what about the? I mean, obviously, you don't jump into these um, events without doing a huge amount of research and development, uh, specifically with regards to safety of the competitors and those attending as well. Um, how do you t- sort of mitigate the, the 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 dangers that I'm sure are inherent with a race at this spe- at this speed? Yeah, so we're very much falling back on over 45 countries worth of, of events all around the world, often in inner city locations, in places where you'd imagine, you know, obviously health and safety being a number one priority. But, but also on top of that, the nice thing about how this system works is that it's human controlled. So, so without getting too much of the science of it, you're essentially human vectoring it. It really means you point the engines down and you go up and you flare them out to the side and you go down again. So as a result of that, we have enjoyed less restrictions and drones do uh, because in the end it's as manual as a bicycle or a motorbike you have to as a human choose to fly into a crowd or go very high or do something dangerous with it which none of our professional pilots do none of our clients do either Um, and as a result there is no system that can malfunction that can take you off into a, a dangerous altitude or into a trajectory with the audience so by keeping three, four, five meters above the water around a pre-designated course, um, the the risk, if you like, is is uh, constrained towards those pilots just ending up in the water because they've messed up or something's gone wrong. And therefore, they're safely away from the crowds and, and safely away from causing themselves or anybody else any damage. So actually, whilst it looks spectacular and very exciting and almost something like out of a Marvel superhero film. Um, <laughs> it, you can actually keep the uh, safety, frankly, safer than motor racing. You mentioned there, Richard, about the about the, uh, the the pilots, about the teams, about the sponsors that come on. Is that the sort of format as well? Is it pilot versus pilot? Is it nation versus nation? Is it team versus team? So, so the, the race at the end of February uh, is going to be uh, is deliberately called a showcase because mm. we have to start from somewhere building up. The momentum of this uh, to begin with it's going to be mostly our team pilots um, we're hoping to have a uae pilot as well who's starting his training very soon um, and we've got a variety of other clients who have learned with us in the uk la and we should soon have our training facility at skydive dubai as well um, so eventually as we end up with more pilots and more companies involved we've got a wonderful bunch of sponsors coming coming online as well uh, we are as i said at the beginning very much borrowing from the well-proven playbook of motor racing where i could see within a year or so we have actual branded teams even starting to modify the equipment within the boundaries of the rules that we will continually enhance um, so you have got exactly that um, 
team sort of constructed championship and the pilot championship and you know even pairs of pilots flying for individual branded companies so all of that is to come it's got to start with this showcase to just prove how spectacular this um whole race format really is i cannot wait as you mentioned uh, next month february is part of the dubai boat show is it a bird is it a plane nope it's a load of people in gravity jet suits uh, uh, inv- uh, uh, touching down here in Dubai. Richard, really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, looking forward to you and the team jetting into Dubai for this one. Uh, much anticipation amongst the team? Oh, yes. I mean, we, we've just finished last week uh, filming around Dubai. I expect people could, could have actually come across and seen some of it and heard some of it. We were um, uh, flying around the uh, the big fountain lake near the, uh, the, the Burj Tower. <laughs> And um, that's where we landed to actually sort of formally open the race. So uh, you can see some of that at Take On Gravity on Instagram. Um, and, and frankly, just filming the promotional shots for the, for the race was spectacular. And the sort of pinch me moment of looking at the uh, backdrops you're flying past. So uh, imagine when we've got even more pilots actually competitively flying with that backdrop. It's going to be spectacular. Cannot wait. Can't thank you enough for your time this morning, Richard. Really appreciate you uh, you joining us live here on the agenda. We look forward to catching up with you uh, closer to the event. Richard Browning there, a real life or the real life Ironman joining us live on the line. He is the founder of Gravity Industries and the chief test pilot for the Gravity Jet Suit, which will be in action in the skies of Dubai in just a matter of weeks. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Right, big thanks to our guests in the first hour of the show, Lorna King and Dr. Kirin Hillier, uh, talking all things workplace, burnout, uh, support and more. Uh, we are first day of a brand new week. It's going to be a busy one, uh, I'm afraid, what with... Uh, the Arab Health event here in town. Uh, it's been a busy weekend, though, especially for sports fans. Let's shift focus, if we now, to a busy weekend of sport that was. Uh, Art Sports Editor Chris McCarty has, of course, been uh, very much on top of that, finger on the pulse throughout, and he has all the latest headlines. Well, a very good morning, Tom. Happy Monday and rather fitting that you find me at a school sports day. The dad race upcoming, so I'll try and keep this as brief as possible. Yes, I'll be partaking in that race. Yes, I'm a competitive so-and-so. So much to look back on this past weekend. Where on earth do we start, Tom? Well, let's start with the cricket. Not one, but two major shocks. We will start with the biggest one of those down in Hyderabad, end of day four, England, who, lest we forget, trailed by 190 runs in that first innings. Well, I can tell you, spoiler alert, they went on to win it by 28 runs. One of the great victories in England's history, no doubt about it. Ollie Pope, 196 from that man in that second innings. A seven-wicket haul as well by Tom Hartley, who, well, came in for not much abuse per se, but he came in for a lot of criticism, of course, hit for a six 
the first test bowler on debut for England to be hit for a six on first ball. My goodness gracious me, you've got to give him great credit for bouncing back seven wickets in that second innings. England winning by 28 runs. And what that does is it sets this five-match set says five match series sorry, alive. That's what it does. It sets it alight. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to what the next tests have in store for us. The other big shock, the West Indies down in the Gabba against Australia, winning that test match by eight runs. West Indies, who've been in a bit of the doldrums when it comes to test cricket, showing that they are very much alive in kicking. That a bit of a reality check for Australia, who have had just an incredible 12 months. Test Championship winners, of course, winners of the World Cup recently as well. So that's the big two stories in the world of cricket. As for elsewhere, well, we've got to say a massive congratulations to both Arena Sabalenka as well as Yannick Sinner. Sabalenka far too strong for Zheng in the final of the Women's Australian Open. Two kitten straight set, far too powerful, far too experienced over the piece. You've got to say Arena Sabalenka right now, the informed women in world tennis. As for the men's final, well, it lived up to all expectations. Daniel Medvedev, he led by two sets to love. I watched this from start to finish. Yannick Sinner then turned on the afterburners. He took that crucial third set, and from there, he never looked back. Some incredible ground strokes, some incredible rallies. Daniel Medvedev deserves all the credit in the world. That's now three Australian Open finals, three defeats. He's starting to look a little like Andy Murray down there, of course, Andy Murray, a five-time runner-up at the Australian Open. As for Yannick Sinner, this is merely the start. Just 22 years of age, the first Italian, both male or female, to win at the Australian Open singles title. And he's the real deal. We thought that Carlos Alcaraz, that this could be the next decade of dominance for the Spaniard. I think he's got a real rival there. Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz, that two-pronged attack, very much represent the future of tennis. So that's the tennis world caught up to date with. What about the football? big weekend of Asian Cup action, of African Nations action, as well as action on the continent in club football. Let's start with international football. And it's a sad story to bring you this morning because the United Arab Emirates are out of the Asian Cup. An absolute shocker. They lost to Tajikistan on penalties last night, beating 5-3 as it was. Misery for Paulo Bento, where the Portuguese goes from here. I think the United Arab Emirates would have expected to beat with the greatest of respects Tajikistan. It wasn't to be. They relied on a 96th-minute equaliser to take the game to extra time. There was to be no winning goal. It went to penalties, the lottery of penalties, and the United Arab Emirates coming a cropper. The same can also be said for Egypt, minus Mohamed Salah. They have bowed out of the African Cup of Nations. They were beaten on penalties, 8-7 in the end by the Dominican Republic of Congo. So that, I guess, silences the kind of debate as to whether Mo Salah could get fit enough if Egypt were to make the final. Not a jot of it now. Mo Salah can concentrate on getting fit and then focusing on club honours with Liverpool Football Club. Of course, the news with Liverpool, that was back on Friday that Jurgen Klopp is to step down at the end of the season. No such problems for Liverpool in the Emirates FA Cup. They defeated Norwich by five goals to two at Anfield yesterday. That keeps up their hopes of winning a quadruple. Manchester United pushed all the way by Newport. They would eventually come through 4-2. They did lead that one 2-0. Newport pulling the game back to 2-2. At that point, me and an awful lot of Man United fans were by 
biting her fingernails, but in the end, the class told Anthony and Rasmus Hoyland, adding that third and fourth goals, respectively. Manchester City, big winners over Tottenham, a first win for them at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That has seen City progress to the next stage as well. So that gets you bang up to date. The football, the cricket, the tennis, Tom. I'm sure I'm missing something. It's just been a mental weekend. I know one thing I am missing, the Rack Championships. Let's talk golf very quickly. Torbjörn Olesen, the Dane, back to form an eighth DP World Tour title for the Dane. He's had his off-course issues. They're well-documented, but he was supreme over the week down in Russell Kama. A wide margin of victory, and the Dane, very much someone to keep a very close eye on over the course of 2024. Rasmus Hoyland, uh, Hoygaard, sorry. Rasmus Hoyland's the Manchester United striker. Rasmus Hoygaard, runner-up the other day, and his brother Nikolai over at the Farmer Insurance Open stateside, also runner-up. So despite them not getting the title, a good weekend for the Hoygaard family. And that is about it, Tom. I'm conscious that the dad's race is about to start, so I better leave you now and head to that. But uh, yeah, busy, busy weekend, Tom. Always a pleasure. We'll catch up with you soon. Tom, cheers, Tom. Big thanks to you, Mr. McCarthy. Best of luck uh, on the dad's race, sack race, egg and spoon race, whatever he ends up doing uh, down there uh, at um, for the sports day uh, for his children. That's Chris McCarthy with the latest uh, in the world of sport.